0: We are discussing uh, here uh, what is the center of the center. The center of the center is that God created the world out of love for the purpose of love, inviting people in on sharing His love. The purpose of the church is to model that love as, uh, as demonstrated in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the center of it. The center of all that opposes that, we've seen, In the previous series, I'm entitled that, Love and the Knowledge of Good and Evil. And if you weren't here, the the tape series is available. But everything that opposes it is about eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is not how we normally think about these things, but it is the truth. At the center of the garden, that which around everything else revolves, is the prohibition not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is really just a matter of getting life from what you think you know about good and evil. It is most clearly expressed in the act of judgment. It's expressed in a lot of ways. It is actually the essence of all sin. But this clearest expression throughout history and yet today is in the act of playing God. That's what it is when we move in the center of the garden and eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We're playing God. We are like God. We're created in the image of God in our capacity to love. But we're not to play like God in the capacity of judgment. And when we try to play like God in the capacity of judgment, we cease being like God in our capacity to love. The two are antithetical. The enemy's greatest tactic in keeping humanity in bondage to him is that the accuser makes us accusers and we play God and we feed off of that. There's an emptiness in us that only God's love can, can meet, but when we're playing God, we don't get that need met, so the way we try to meet that need is by playing God. And by noticing how, we're, how those people out there are different than us, they don't think like us, they act different than us, they smell different than us, uh, you know, and, and we have a judgment on that, a critique on that, and we feed off of that. We need to feel like we're right, we need to feel like we're better, we need to feel like we're superior, we need to feel like we're on the in and they're on the out, and, and uh, it's, a, it's an idol, It is a religious idol. The strongest idol in the world is the idol of religion. And the strongest spirit of opposition against God is the spirit of religion. It's more The the sin of judgmentalism is, in this respect, more foundational than any other sin because it cuts to the core of the purpose of existence. It blocks the flow of love flowing into us and flowing out of us. And what makes it all the more diabolical is that it's so subtle. It's not obvious like a lot of other kinds of sins are it's it, it's profoundly subtle. it is uh, uh, so close to us it's this this spirit of religion, this judgmentalism, getting life from from distinguishing ourselves from others. It's like the nose on our face it's hard to see all the more reason why we need to highlight it and look at it. This is the the sin that that most characterizes the body of Christ. And I'm talking to myself here, and I'm talking to you, and I'm talking to the church at large. And we're need to, we going to need to put on uh, a real strong sense of grace here because we're all guilty of this. Let's say this out loud at the start. We're all guilty of this one. So this isn't about shame or condemnation. We need forgiveness in this area. But it is the one, I believe, that applies most strongly to each of our lives. And yet, its sinister nature is such that probably most of the people in this auditorium, including me for most of my life, think that this isn't an issue that I deal with. We're, 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 we're so acclimated to this that we don't even notice it. Chuck Swindoll last week. Uh, Chuck and I, uh, a number of theological points don't always see eye to eye. But, but he preached this sermon. Uh, I didn't hear it, but my wife heard it, and she had me listen to it. Chuck Swindoll is my wife's favorite preacher, aside from me, of course. And... Um, uh, he, this sermon was about love and judgment, and the man nails it. Uh, he just nails it. He says that this is the, the uh, uh, most common sin in the body of Christ. It is the, the, the command not to judge is the, the most broken command, he said, in the body of Christ. The biggest obstacle to revival, he says, in the church today, the thing that's cutting off the flow of, of God's power and love and life into the church and flowing through the church is the sin of judgmentalism. Man, he just nailed it. A number of leaders I'm seeing are waking up to, 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 to this revelation. What he, he went on to say this, that what is sinister about this is that we don't even notice it. In fact, not only do we not notice it, we sort of condone it. Not only do we condone it, but we train people in it. It's part of it's just part of the package of what it means to be religious. It's it's part of what makes us feel righteous, separate. We get life from this. And we we if we think it's wrong at all, we minimize it and maximize other sins that we're not likely to be as guilty of. But as he is seeing, and as a number of leaders uh, 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 around the uh, the states at least are seeing, Since I've started this series, a number of people have brought to my attention and I've discovered others on my own, leaders whose eyes are opening and who are getting this revelation about the centrality of love and how seriously the church of, at least in America, but I believe it goes beyond that, is missing it on this most fundamental point. And the reason we're missing this central point so seriously is because the central sin that blocks it we're so guilty of. And uh, so you're finding people in, in a lot of different flavors of Christianity. You know, Chuck Swindoll is a Calvinist, and we've got Joyce Myers, who's, who's kind of a charismatic, and Graham Cook, and, and Jack Deerfield, and a number of, 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 of leaders in the church are, are coming up with the same message, that this is, is something we really need to confront head-on, without mincing words, as strong as possible. The anticipation is this. And I, 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 I am sensing this in my own spirit, that God is laying the groundwork uh, here at Woodland Hills Church, but way beyond us, for a revival. A revival. We need a revival. Uh, but it's a revival of love. The most basic thing in the wor- world. We need to be revived to experience once again, or probably actually for the first time, the outrageousness of God's love to us, and then transforming us to flow through us. We've had a revival of the gifts of the Spirit. Praise God for it. And a revival of power. Praise God for it. And a revival of signs and wonders. Praise God for it. And a revival of the joy in the Lord. Praise God for it. All that is good. A revival of healing. Praise God. We, we need that sort of thing. But the most fundamental thing we need... Right now is a revival of love. Amen? To have God's love poured out, we need to be baptized in His love. We need to be surrounded by His love. We need to be filled with His love that will cause us to do outrageous, ridiculous-looking things to people that the world thinks don't deserve it. We need to be the one people on the planet who know, who understand the unsurpassable worth of every human being that we confront. And agreeing with God, ascribe it to them. And show it in our thoughts and show it in our words and show it in our deeds. Then the church of Jesus Christ will begin to look like Jesus Christ looked when he roamed this earth. Wherever he went, he had a bunch of sinners following him. He wanted, they wanted to hang around with him because he was safe. There's a sort of love that was there uh, that, that they just they didn't get it anywhere else. That's what the church is supposed to be like. We're supposed to be a magnet for sinners. The Pharisees were sort of repulsion to sinners. They wanted to stay away from them. But the church, like Jesus Christ, is to be a magnet. And the only thing that will do that is when the Lord collapses all forms of accusation, the accuser making us accusers. When the Lord collapses that and fills us with his outrageous, uh, religiously scandalous love and embrace towards others. We so often say we need to invite people to church. And that's true. That's true. But you know what? The way you do that is by going out to them. Uh, The New Testament never says, oh, we're supposed to tell them to come here and be like us and jump through these hoops and then we'll accept them. No. As they are right now without any semblance of change, our job is to go to them and to express radical, unconditional love that breaks every stereotype they had about what a Christian is supposed to be, what a Christian is supposed to be doing, and we love them into the kingdom. Amen? Love them into the kingdom. Love them into the kingdom. We're talking about something that is as foundational as anything could be. Now, what I want to be doing here, I've laid kind of a big picture here, and I know that there's a lot of questions that we haven't addressed yet, and we're getting to them. But first, you've got to lay the foundation. I'm going to now begin to get a little more practical and a little more specific with all of this. Uh, what does love look like? And we're going to be talking about that quite a bit. And what does judgment look like? And we're going to be talking about that quite a bit. Uh, What I want to do this morning is just zero in, uh, do something we haven't done thus far, and that's just zero in specifically on this thing of judgment. What is it and what is it not? And uh, uh, I want us to feel the full force of this and to have some uh, understanding of of how it applies. I want to read a, a number of scriptures here that deal with judgment, and I bring them together here just so you have the opportunity to feel the full force of this. Uh, there's, there's a power that happens when you bring the Word of God and collect it topically. Now, this isn't an exhaustive list. It's a sampling, but it's important for us to get this. I don't know of any sin other than the sin of unbelief that is mentioned as frequently as judgmentalism in the New Testament. Greed comes close, uh, but but it, it's not quite as frequent as, as judgmentalism. Uh, this is an important one to talk about. So here, here's the sampling, Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Jesus says, do not judge so that you may not be judged. Do not judge so that you may not be judged. Point blank, without qualification. Don't do it! John 8, He says, you judge by human standards, but I judge no one. This is the Son of God. John 12, 47-48, He says, I do not judge anyone who hears My words and does not keep them. Listen to this. For I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. There's a time of judgment, the Lord is saying. There's a time of judgment, and God will take care of that. doesn't need our help. Thank you very much. But this is the time of salvation. He didn't come to judge the world. He didn't come to condemn the world. Uh, He came to save the world, so He suspends all judgment. We're talking the Son of God here. Suspends all judgment to offer salvation. And we are called to do the exact same thing that Jesus did to trust that God will take care of all the judgment that's necessary and our job is just to love people into salvation showing them the love that God has for them the one who rejects me does not receive my word and by not receiving my word has a judge on the last day that I have spoken my word will serve as judge i'll leave that till then right now is the time of salvation romans chapter 2 therefore you have no excuse everybody say no excuse, no excuse. is there any excuse no, there's no excuse. You have no excuse whoever you are when you judge others. Yeah, but you should see him. Uh, you, you don't know this person. No excuse! Romans chapter 4, verse 12. There's one lawgiver. Everybody say one. one. How many lawgivers are there? One. Okay. And one judge. Everybody say one. one. How many judges are there? One. Okay, you're getting it. Who is able to save and to, to destroy? Who then are you to judge your neighbor? The one? I don't think so. It's not your domain. Romans chapter 14, "...who are you to pass judgment on, your, on the servants of another?" It is before their own Lord that they stand or fall. He's talking this way. There's masters and there's servants of the masters. And it's not the job of any master to judge another uh, servant of a master. He'll take care of that. You, your job is to judge your, master, your servant. Okay? He answers to you and to you alone. So also Paul is saying everybody answers to God. God is their master, not you. So you have no, you have no business judging them. Do you think that you're their master? No, you're not. Therefore, you leave them alone. It is before their own Lord that they stand or fall, and they will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make them stand. Romans 14:10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother or sister? Or you, why do you despise your brother or sister? So much of this in the body of Christ. Uh, You know, I I bet two-thirds of the people in this auditorium here have at some point felt the pain of being despised in the body of Christ. Someone, uh, you know, saying something or doing something that cast judgment on you, whether it was true or not, doesn't even matter. You felt the pain of that, despite, but well, I don't think that their motives are very pure. Just look at that person. You think that they're, oh, they're showing off. I, oh, I know what their person, you know, you know what I heard about this. Yeah, it just goes on and on and on. Oh. oh, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Why do you do that? Do you think that you're the one that uh, every judgment we make, it is though we think the judgment seat is right before us and people stand before our judgment seat. It's not true. So then, each of us will will, give, will be accountable to God. He's the one we're accountable, not to each other. Unless we invite, we'll see later on, invite a person in to hold us accountable. Romans 14:13. Let us therefore no longer pass judgment on one another, but resolve instead never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of, of another. And that's what we do when we judge them. And it goes on and on and on. We could we could we could multiply these verses significantly, but you get the thrust here. You get the thrust here. The Lord really wants to collapse this thing. Why? Because it is at the core of everything that's wrong with the universe. And the ones who are most guilty of it are religious people. And we don't like to look at that, do we? Uh, it, it, we, we, we let's rather talk about those sins. We could get a rah-rah rally going here if we could talk about those nasty people out there. You know, the ones the stuff that we're not guilty of. But we need to seriously look at calling on the mercy of God. Let's just be. We don't get life from, from, from being sinless, right? Well, here's the sin that we're probably the most guilty of, and we don't even know it. So we need to really just look at this. Now, the word judgment is krino in Greek. To judge, krino. And it literally means to separate. We get the word critic from it. Critic. A critic is one who separates. A movie critic separates the good movies from the bad movies. A literary critic separates the good literature from the bad literature. Uh, It's just being a critic. It's not always used in a bad sense. There's a good sense of separation and a bad sense of separation. And sometimes the Bible teaches, and we'll be getting to this more later on, uh, that, that we need to be critics. We need to discern. I would like to use the word discern for this, this way of judging to keep it distinct from this negative form of judging. We are to discern good or evil. Some people especially in this culture when you hear that we're not to judge others, they think it implies some kind of moral relativism that there is no truth, there is no up, there is no down, there's no good, there's no bad, everyone has to decide for themselves. Someone gets murdered and you say, "Well, who am I to judge?" Well, no, no, that's bad. And and, and we're to know what knowing the will of God, we can, we know what is good, we know what is bad. We're in a fallen world, and so things are good or evil, and we're supposed to discern that. It's a mark of spiritual maturity. Separating the good from the evil is a, is a necessary thing. Having it meshed together is a very bad thing. That's a good sense of discernment, a good use of the word crino. You, separate, you distinguish between what is good or what is evil. And there's even, we'll see in the weeks to come, a, an appropriate context to speak this discernment to another. In the New Testament, everybody lived in a house church. They fellowshiped with a house church. Uh, we, we know from the book of Acts and other sources that they would get together often every morning of the week uh, in a hostile environment, break bread together, speak the Word of God together, praise the Lord together. They lived life together and they invited each other in on their lives. In that sense, when someone has invited you in on, their, uh, on your life, now they've asked you to help them discern, to hold them accountable. All the one-anothers of the New Testament, love one another, be kind to one another, hospitable to one another, hold each other accountable, and sometimes even rebuke one another, all those things have meaning, have applicability in a house, church, small group context where you have relationships with people. It's not talking about how to, how to treat strangers in a large group gathering or strangers on the street. It's talking about how to deal with people with, 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 with whom you are in relationship. That's an appropriate way to help people discern. Because they know that you're not judging them. They know that you're not getting life from being better than them. They know if you're in a relationship that your motive is to love them and help them. So you say, here's what I'm discerning. The teaching against judgment has nothing to do with that. The teaching against judgment as a foundational sin is this. The separation that occurs is not a separation just distinguishing good from evil, but it's a separation between me and another person. I am their critic. And so I separate them from me and put them beneath me, and I feed off of it. The judgment that the Bible is against is drawing a conclusion about another person. Not just observing a behavior. Now, this, was, this was a bad thing, and that was a good thing. But it's drawing a conclusion about them. They are this. And we put a label on it. Here's here's we are defining them. Which only God can do. But we're defining them. It's a favorite Christian hobby. Defining them, uh, uh, putting them into a group together, drawing a conclusion about them, and separating ourselves from them because we are not like this. And whether we acknowledge it or not, there's a feeding that's going on there. We feel on the in instead of the out because we're not like this. That is the kind of judgment that is never, ever, ever appropriate. And it's foundational and it's pervasive and we needed to confront it. Now why can't we judge like that? And I'll give two reasons here very 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 briefly, two reasons that the Bible gives. Both of them are absolutely profound. The first is that and this will be new to most of us, we are not God. We're not I'm sorry, I just ruined your day, but you're you're not him. Sorry, you're not the one. You're not the one. If you think you're the one, Talk to our care department and we'll, we'll help you uh, in that area. You're not omniscient. You're not omniscient, which means all knowing. God is all knowing. That's why he's the only one who really knows ultimately good and evil. When we eat of the forbidden tree, the mechanism of good and evil comes into our brain, but it operates in our puny little finite, uh, from our puny little finite perspective. So we have this. Uh, proclivity to, to act like we're God, to, to make judgments as though we knew stuff, but we don't know stuff. What we know is only the surface of things. We see the, we, the exterior. We we see the very we see one snowflake as the tip of an iceberg that's a mile deep, and we think we know the whole iceberg, but we don't. God does, and that's why He'll sort it all out in the end. But we see just by appearances. It says in First Samuel chapter sixteen uh, that, that that God doesn't see like mortals see. We look on the outward appearance of things, but the Lord looks at the heart. God discerns the motives of the heart, and God knows the stories behind people in a way that we can't. That's why all judgment is left to God. Our one job is to be like God in the way that He created us to be like God, and that is to love, often despite the appearances that we see. And not go beyond that because we don't know anything else beyond that. Unless a person invites us in and says, will you hold me accountable and shares part of their story? Now we know a little bit more. So maybe what we say will have a little bit more uh, wisdom to it and be a little bit more effective. But for the vast, vast, vast majority of people that you, that you come in contact with uh, in the world and, and in the church, you see the tip of the iceberg. And when we, go be, when we make judgments as though we were God and draw conclusions about people and put a label on them, we now put on a filter on our eyes. And we're feeding off of what we think we know when, in fact, we don't know anything. And it's always destructive. First church I pastored in out east, I was assistant pastor, pastor of visitation. It was a little Pentecostal church. And and we used to have these Sunday night meetings where we'd have testimony services. You know, people would stand up and give a testimony. It was really nice. And one time this lady that I'd never seen before stood up. And um, automatically, you know, you could tell something was a little different here because she didn't look like everybody else. Everybody else were saints of God, and, and in this church, as in many churches, there's a distinctive look to the saints of God. Uh, you know, they wear their hair a certain way, and, and you know, just, they had that godly aura to them. This lady didn't have the godly aura. Uh, she just looked, you know, normal, in fact, kind of ragged and whatever. But she gave this testimony that I thought was really good about how the Lord has just been working with her, touching her, blessing her, having mercy on her. Now what was odd is that usually when people gave testimonies, the rest of the people were like, "Amen, preacher, Hallelujah, thank you, Jesus," you know, and all that. When she when she gave a testimony, it was silent. It was dead silent, except for this one little lady in the front row who was like, "Oh, thank you, Jesus, Hallelujah, Hallelujah." But everyone else, in fact, some of them had frowns on their faces, like "Ooh," and some of them were kind of shaking their head. And a few people would whisper, you know, it, it just you could like you could just sense it, like well, this is not good. She gave her testimony, sat down. And it was kind of awkward, actually. I went afterwards and talked to a person that was on the board, and I, if, I, if I would have been there, what I am now, uh, I, I wouldn't have done this, but we're all in process, right? So I went to the board member, and I, I didn't go to the woman. I went to the board member, and I said, what's up with this? How come, you know, I, you know everyone was sort of disgruntled when that lady gave a testimony? And he said something to this effect. Well, we're, we're kind of tired of her. Um, you see, uh, you know, she was all on fire. She, she's on fire for Jesus one minute, and then she's out there in the bars getting drunk and sleeping around the next minute. And, and we're just kind of getting tired of this. She's really uh, bringing uh, the church into ill repute, and uh, our reputation is, is, is not good, and we, we just you know, we, we can't tolerate this sort of hypocrisy. So when she gets up and testifies, we've heard it all before, and we're really tired of it. Now, being where I was, a young, uninformed student there, I was like, ooh, yeah, that is bad. You know, we, we need to take a stand. No. sometime later maybe about a year I uh, for uh, as part of my job as the pastor visitation I, I stopped by and visited this woman and now I got beyond the snowflake on the surface of the water and got a little bit of the iceberg and um, the, the, the story basically is this she let me in on, on, on some of her life and it's basically this As a little child, she was sexually abused. As a teenager, she was sexually abused. As an adult, she's been sexually abused. Most of what she's known all of her life is some form of abuse, but mainly sexual abuse. She had a baby around the age of 18 or so, and this baby was like the one thing that justified her existence. She finally did something right. This is a person who, as you can well understand, was living in a significant degree of despair. But finally, there's something, even though it was out of wedlock, she loved this baby and thought that this baby was the one you know, good thing in her life. And And the one thing she wanted was to give this baby a life that she didn't have. When the baby was about three or so, the child was about three. And and it was at this point that she became a Christian because, mainly for her baby, uh, she thought this baby has to be raised, right? So she started going to church, and and she committed her life to the Lord and was making progress. And she, she she really fell in love with God and got excited, and she'd stand up and testify. At some point, she married a man. Now, she's still damaged, so her ability to discern healthy men from unhealthy men isn't operating very well. She's only known unhealthy men. In fact, she has a mechanism installed by a bunch of lies in her brain that drives her towards unhealthy men, which a lot of sexual abuse victims do. Uh, They seek out that which they really hate, but there's there's a consistency there that drives them to it. She married a very unhealthy man who said he was a Christian but really had nothing to do with the Lord and nothing to do with the church and and was verbally abusive and a few times even physically abusive. But the marriage was surviving for several years until she found out. I guess it was about seven years. And all this time she was in church praising the Lord and her child's growing up. But then she finds out that she has uh, sexually transmitted disease. Now, she's been faithful for seven or eight years with this man. And so she's wondering, where did she get this from? There's only one source. She got it from him. And where did he get it? He got it because he's been sleeping around the whole time they've been married. That was bad. That was really bad. It crushed her. But the real bad news is that she found out that her daughter also had a sexually transmitted disease, and she got it from him. And it turns out that he had been sexually abusing her for uh, most of their married life, and her world exploded, as you can well understand. Uh, In her theology, screwed up theology, she blamed God for it all. And so she wanted nothing to do with God. She raged at God. But even worse than this is she blamed herself. The one thing in her life that was positive, she couldn't even do this right. And now her daughter has exactly the same kind of upbringing that she had. And she, she was indicting herself for this. How could she invite this man into her home to do this to her daughter? And she didn't even see it. And now her daughter's got this disease and got all this abuse that she's going to have to deal with. She just cursed her daughter with the same curse that she's been cursed with. And it drove her into the ground, drove her into total despair. And she did. She gave up on God. She gave up on everything. She went back to the bar. She said she was in such pain that the only time she ever felt a relief from it is when she'd get so drunk she'd forget about everything. And so she'd get drunk, and when she'd get drunk, all the old tapes about what a loose woman she is would kick in, and she would start sleeping around, and, and it was just bad. At some point, she came to the bottom of the bottom and turned back to God, at least the, insofar as she knew God, tried to go back to church, confronted the judgmentalism of the church, but pressed on. But before long, because there was no support and no love coming around it, just a bunch of hoops you got to jump through in order to show us that you're really sincere, She'd fall again, she'd crumble again, go back out into the world. And this happened three or four times. And now this board member was saying, we're getting a little tired of this. Not knowing a thing. From his perspective, here's a lady who just decided one day, hey, I think I'm going to go out there and sleep around with everything that moves and get drunk. People don't usually do that. There's usually a reason, you see. And I don't know, if if I was this woman and had gone through what she went through and had this experience. I don't know that I would have been any different. Do you? How would you know that? I'm a finite human being. But see, when we live in judgment, we think we know what we do not know. And we judge on the basis of appearances. And usually there's a whole story behind it. God, God alone knows the heart. God alone knows the story. God alone knows the circumstances. God alone knows to what degree a person's choosing what they do or to what degree it's been chosen by them, by their genes and by their, their social upbringing and by uh, you know, a multitude of other variables. God alone knows that, which is why God alone is judged. And when we play judge, when any uh, believer plays judge, it does nothing but harm. The lie is that we know what we do not know. And the lie is that somehow we're doing good by, by, by judging another person. All that does is it locks them in on that sin. We don't show them the one thing that could turn them and help them and heal them and restore them and transform them. And that is the outrageous love of Jesus Christ flowing to us and flowing through us to that person. If this church had been thinking right, it wouldn't have mattered whether she'd done this four times or 40 times or 70 times or 700 times or 7,000 times. I don't care how many times you fall. The church needs to be there to help you get back up and to love you outrageously and extend the forgiveness of God to you and restore you and transform you. That's our one calling. Amen. Amen. And so often it's just not that way. Words are said. Whispers are, you know, no one ever told this woman you're not welcome here, but she felt it. People feel it when you walk into it. They sense it. Am I welcome here? Uh, What do people think about me? And, And if there's judgmental thoughts going on, people feel it. I don't believe that anything has done more destruction to the cause of Christ than this. This pharisaical sin of judgmentalism. Nothing has hurt Christians more. than than this. People having judgments, speaking judgments, whispering, having suspicious eyes, investigating, you know, uh, how do people measure up? A lot of us, isn't that true? A lot of us have been at the brunt of this. Words being said, thoughts being thought, but we feel it. It harms the body of Christ But it's also, I don't think there's anything on the planet that has kept people away from Jesus Christ more than the pharisaical spirit of religion that permeates the people of God, which causes us to do the exact opposite thing that Jesus Christ came to do, and that was not to judge the world, but to save the world. The religious spirit gets a lot of life out of judging the world. We get angry at the world. We get mad at the sinners as though we are not among them. When our job, our only job, our calling is to love them outrageously regardless of where they are, who they are, what they've done, how many times they've done it, how fallen they are, what they look like. We've got to know that we are seeing just the, 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 the less than the tip of the iceberg. And God alone sees the rest. And what He commands us to do is to love that tip of the iceberg. Passionately, with all that's within us. Paul says this in First Corinthians chapter 13. He says, uh, uh, love believes all things, hopes all things. Love believes all things and hopes all things. And what we need to have is this. When you'll see a person believe the best for them, hope the best for them, you don't know anything different, and our job is to ascribe worth to them, what we do know is that Jesus Christ died for them, and that's all we need to know. Therefore, they have unsurpassable worth. And our job is just to agree with God on that. If they invite us in on their life, we can do a little bit more and offer discernment. But otherwise, it's just to agree with God about their unsurpassable worth and believe the best for them. Suppose a story, imagine a story that maybe explains why they are the way they are. And don't accuse them. Because if it happened to you, you might be doing the exact same thing. I don't have time to get to the second point, but it's just basically that we are sinners like everybody else. And the only purpose of seeing another person's sin is to remind us of our own sin. To know that we are sinners just like we are not God, but we are sinners. Jesus said, Why do you look for specks in other people's eye when you have a log in your own eye? Don't go looking for a dust particle in someone's eye when you have two by four sticking out of your own eye. And what he's saying there is this, their sin should be to you a little speck of dust, your sin should be to you a major log. Take care of your own sin. You have to give account to, to your master. They'll give account to their master. Don't try to play master of them by picking out the specks until you first take care of the logs. And that's basically a lifelong project. The question I want to leave us with is this. What do you see when you look at another person? Whatever, they are, whatever the appearance is, are you able to ascribe unsurpassable worth to them? To look past the sin and see that these are people made in the image of God. And all that they do is done out of a need in their life. And can you believe the best for them and love them outrageously? Brian put together a video here I want to end with. I want to just show you this. It's a two-minute video, and it's it's very challenging. It's just a montage of the, the kind of people that evangelicals typically instinctively judge and feel good about it. And and I, we can throw this up here and let, let, let the Lord use it to confront judgmental aspects perhaps in your own mind as you see these pictures, and then change that to remind yourself that our job is to love them and ascribe unsurpassable worth to them. Can we show the video? Hallelujah. I came not to condemn the world, but to save the world. Our one job is to agree with God and to agree with Jesus Christ and to let Him love through us. What do you see when you see these people? The most beautiful experience in the world, I believe, is when you can collapse all of that and you let the Lord love you unconditionally and then love through you all of those people and everyone that you see unconditionally. Uh, it is living in the pocket. It's living in the center of his love. And now God can use you to be a magnet to love these people into the kingdom. And that's what it's all about. Can we stand? If you have uh, children in the uh, overflow room, I encourage you to pick them up right away. with uh, the prayer team come forward? And I want to invite everybody who's here, if there's a need that uh, you have uh, maybe in the area of love, a person that's just unlovable, I invite you to come forward and spend some time in prayer. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, you've never committed your life to Christ, in this corner of the auditorium, uh, there's a man here with a table, and, and he'll just explain to you what that's about, And just so you know. And if you want to commit your life then, he'll, he'll be glad to do that. Uh, let me close with this prayer. Father, uh, your outrageous love overwhelms us. Uh, when we were yet sinners, you died for us. When we were enemies, uh, you, you, uh, you gave your life for us. We do not deserve what we have received, but we thank you that we have received it. And Father, cultivate in each of us here in this auditorium that same mindset, in obedience to the words of Jesus Christ. Have mercy on others as we have received mercy. No more, no less, but we could not do it more. Father, make us into the outrageous, loving people that you 've called us to be a bride who looks like you, an army that operates like you, Lord God, that loves that loves the people of the world uh, as much as you did, Lord God, and then use us, Lord God, to in communicating that love, teach them something about who you are and bring them into the saving love of Jesus Christ, use us, Lord God, we repent of of, of uh, the many occasions that each of us have, done, have had where we did not love, as you've told us to love, we turn from that, Lord God, we receive your forgiveness. And we commit ourselves to loving outrageously all people at all times, in all circumstances, and all conditions, no ifs, ands, or buts. Only by your Spirit can we do this, Lord God, so we surrender ourselves to your Spirit and take that Spirit out into the world that desperately needs it. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. The front of the auditorium is open. Come forward for prayer if you'd like to.